1: With me today is Penn State's Dr. Daniel George and Case Western Reserve's Dr. Peter Whitehouse to discuss their recently published John Hopkins volume, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. Doctors George and Whitehouse, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, David. Great to be here. Likewise.
0: Thank you, David.
1: And just for the listener, the first voice you heard was uh, Peter's, the second was uh, Daniel's. Both Dr. George and Dr. Whitehouse's bios are, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, I'll simply note the author's thesis stated in the book's preface. It reads, quote-unquote, A fairer political and economic order, where prosperity is more inclusively shared and the public's health and well-being is once again aggressively protected, will provide the conditions for everyone to build greater resilience to brain aging. Translation, this book largely is an examination of the detrimental effects neoliberal policies have had in successfully addressing Alzheimer's and, moreover, brain health. This work should remind listeners of my May discussion with CUNY professor Nick Freudenberg regarding his work at what cost modern capitalism and the future of health. Dr. George and Whitehouse are also the co-authors of a 2008 work, The Myth of Alzheimer's. So with that as brief introduction, let's get uh, right into this. Uh, you both published an overview of the volume in an August um, uh, 25th piece in Scientific America, and I note it because it's appropriate to start with uh, your criticism of the paradigm used to uh, define Alzheimer's, and uh, in your Scientific American, you state, at the heart of this problem is that the field has ossified in decidedly unscientific fashion around, and this is the phrase, amyloid cascade hypothesis. Okay, so the book begins with a discussion of why, um, how we define Alzheimer's um, is problematic. So, you could you explain either or both specifically why is it uh, problematic, and why uh, therefore have we've not been successful in finding a therapeutic uh, cure to date?
2: So, David, let me, um, if Danny's okay, go first. I'm the clinician of the two, some, um, and uh, have been um, working with uh, people with what I call aging associated cognitive challenges for over thirty five years. And I've seen the field evolve um, in a way that's not terribly healthy. How has it evolved? Well, the, the first is um, that they have increasingly used what are called biological markers or biomarkers to define the disease rather than the clinical features. Which ended up, for example, with this horrible approval of a medicine we might talk about later, yes, purely based on on, on effects on biology and not on um, on, on, the, on benefiting people. Um, But what we said in the myth of Alzheimer's is that Alzheimer's is not one thing. And that was controversial in 2008, but it isn't anymore. So uh, Alzheimer's itself is not one condition. And the other controversial point is that it is related to aging. Um, the, The relationships are unclear, but the idea that we're all on some kind of continuum. So doctors fool around with labels. We've had mild cognitive impairment. Now we have something called subjective cognitive decline. All of this shows that the experts are as confused about the terminology, and they're not being cautious enough about um, then uh, realizing that that their own confusion affects uh, people that were trying to help, and also certainly helps uh, create confusion when it comes to trying to develop effective interventions, which shouldn't be just medical; they should be social.
1: Thank yeah, you. And pe- if I can, please. Oh, go ahead, David. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Yeah.
0: Yeah, if I can just add to that, I'm really glad that you started with that, David. And um, the article is in part alluding to kind of the, the way the medical industrial complex works in the Alzheimer's field. And I know some of your listeners are interested in policy. And, you know, the fact is that science is always embedded in a political economy and it's not never just pure production of knowledge. And what we've seen over the last several decades Is this, um, you know, this total um, unremitting commitment to the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which is the idea that this protein beta amyloid, which is a component of the plaques that people may have heard associated with Alzheimer's disease, is toxic, and therefore we need to create drugs that attack or preempt its formation. And we've spent billions of dollars over the last 20 years doing that, with 100% fail rate. And normally, if science was working appropriately, you would say, "Okay, well, let's pull back and see what's not working and revisit our hypothesis here. And yet there is so much money invested in amyloid approaches. There are so many careers that have been built on it. Um, Organizations fund people with that as a prerequisite for getting grants that this sort of industrial complex is formed in Alzheimer's disease, and it has really precluded any new innovative thinking about what Alzheimer's is, or even as Peter's saying, you know, just a recognition of what we're actually dealing with, which is an age-related heterogeneous syndrome that we label with a singular term, Alzheimer's disease, but which is really an umbrella term for a lot of different age-related processes that are happening in aging brains. Um, so, so yeah, the, the word ossified was one that we chose with, with great intentionality because it's been very frustrating for people who are critical of, of these approaches to just see the field stagnant for decades.
1: Okay, uh, thank you. So um, I did use the word paradigm, and this is in the context. And you do note in the book uh, Thomas Kuhn, A Structure of Scientific Revolution, which I think should be, I hope you, you guys require in your coursework. Uh, reading even though it, I think it was published way back now in sixty four but uh Peter, you did mention uh the the current i suppose poster child for this and this is the biogen uh drug so if you could um uh, maybe further your explanation by noting uh its status in fact, I apologize I think this is sort of strange this is a drug for Alzheimer's, but who can remember how to even pronounce this drug so i'll just I'll just let either of you try to pronounce it because I certainly can't.
2: Well it it goes by two names I use Aducanumab Aducanumab uh once you practice it it kind of flows off the tongue but the the brand name is Aduhelm and um I don't use the brand name for various reasons one is I still think there's some possibility it will be taken off the market if not now later um, as Danny said, uh, this amyloid hypothesis um, is not a hypothesis. It's ba- basically a political statement that has gotten money directed towards one particular part of the biology uh, of of aging and of Alzheimer's. And and amyloid is found in the brains of uh, of folks that don't have uh, uh, a clinical cognitive uh, pattern impairment as well as those that do. So its relationship to this label, these labels we've been talking about, is unclear. In fact, this is not a treatment, in my opinion, for Alzheimer's. It's a treatment for amyloid in the brain. But as Danny also said, there are some people who think that this is part of a brain response mechanism. And the real reason that aducanumab uh, is, 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 is a tragedy is that the FDA, having said we're not going to approve uh, drugs just on based on uh, unvalidated markers, we're not going to approve this drug, and they didn't get the advisory panel to weigh in on on that particular approval, approved the drug on the basis of the fact that it takes amyloid out of the brain. And that it does. But the real issue is, does that hurt? people, or does it help people, and it clearly calls, caused more problems, edema, swelling, that is, and hemorrhages in the brain, and a sizable number of people. So the FDA was pushed by Biogen, who had a particular project, Project uh, Onks, to, uh, to, to, to influence the FDA. There were meetings that are being investigated by the Inspector General and by congressional committees, and by the National Alzheimer's Association. That's why we called the article Alzheimer's, Inc., you know, the, the, the industry too big to fail. These guys have been promising us something uh, for for decades and over-promising and claiming it'll save money and help people, and they just had to have something approved. It's just too bad that they picked something that hasn't been demonstrated to be beneficial and has been demonstrated to be uh, potentially uh, harmful.
1: Okay, uh, thank you. You you otherwise phrased this as the Alzheimer's cabal, and I did find it interesting by way of uh, examples you note this uh, widely studied, I believe, uh, work that involved the School of Sisters of Notre Dame, which uh, disputes this amyloid-centric focus uh, approach. Um, uh, uh, Daniel, do you have a, a follow-up comment? Otherwise, I'll move on.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the, the nun study that you're mentioning is really intriguing. That was one of the early studies that was showing this uh, conundrum, which is that, uh, as Peter said, um, you know, almost 40% of normally aged people who don't have dementia have amyloid in their brains. Uh, the pathology is not destiny, and conversely, people can have uh, uh, have dementia and not have a high burden of plaques and tangles. So there's a very um, you know there's a there's a quandary here, uh, and it's this isn't a matter of treating like a single pathogen. Alzheimer's disease is a very complex uh, condition, but we have focused laser focused on one aspect of that syndrome, amyloid, and uh, kind of invested all of our money there. I will say, to add on what Peter's saying, um, another interesting part of the story, Biogen had Project Onyx, which was to get the FDA approval. They also had a second project uh, internally called Project Javelin. Uh, This was a, a push you know, post-approval to get this drug out to as many people as they could. This drug was, of course, priced at $56,000, mm-hmm. which was many times more than was, was speculated. But uh, part of this project, Javelin, involves Biogen rolling out a website, which we won't name, uh, but it, it has an interactive quiz on it. Uh, and almost any way that you answer this quiz about your brain health, will sort of point the user towards infusion centers in their region, which of course deliver the, uh, biogen drug, uh, which is, you know, not effective, we don't think, and potentially very dangerous. Uh, so quite irresponsible, uh, manipulative market behavior by biogen, um, that has been just sort of greenlit by the FDA's unwise decision.
1: Okay. Thank you. Let's, let's move on then. So you pose an alternative definition or understanding of Alzheimer's, uh, That is, it's uh, and I'll just summarize here, and I'll ask you to explain. It's not a single disease. You say it's a heterogeneous uh, syndrome with uh, multiple overlapping pathological abnormalities, and use the phrase mixed dementia. What what does all this mean, or what is your alternative uh, paradigm here? So,
2: um, Alzheimer's disease uh, is named after a a doctor Alois Alzheimer, who described what's considered the first case in 1906. And that was an, a, a, a younger woman who had um, the two pathological features, which still dominate our attention. The plaque, which has amyloid and the neurofibrillary tangle that's found inside nerve cells. And they are certainly part of the pathology of, of, of these conditions. Um, the, the the second um, case uh, that he reported back then actually only had plaques. And so we've had this war. Uh, you're in Washington. You know about politics between the so-called Baptists that think that beta amyloid uh, protein is the key. That's the amyloid hypothesis and the Taoists who think that it's the tangle and um the, the the but the fact is that if you look in the brains of individuals who have been called as having alzheimer's disease you will find those pathologies variably you will find other pathologies and in actual fact, when people say the most common cause of dementia is this single condition Alzheimer's, that's not accurate. Uh, the, the the mixed dementia, uh, which means that somebody has plaques and tangles and maybe some other features and maybe vascular uh, factors. So uh, small uh, strokes uh, can cause um, dementia. So the average older person. Uh, has a brain that 's a result of a lifelong um, uh, influences um, which can include other things like head injury or exposures to toxins like lead so this idea that we 've got this one condition that can be fixed with you know a single drug or perhaps more than one drug, and that um, that 's the most common cause of dementia is just very misleading and what 's also misleading is throughout this history this over a hundred year history. Alzheimer himself was confused and the experts today are still confused about what is the relationship between brain aging that occurs in all of us uh, and these um, pathological states. Um, Maybe we're trying to cure aging by this uh, this this uh, magic bullet approach to to medicine, which we think is so harmful.
1: Well, thank you, Peter. Let me let me I'll pass on to Daniel uh, uh, this question, and this will just further uh, Peter's point. And that is, I thought this was interesting, in order to understand the cause, I phrase it this way, in order to understand the causes of Alzheimer's, it's important to note what explains the decline, a recent decline in Alzheimer's rates, and this gets at Peter's comment about their other confounding factors here
0: yeah absolutely and that's that's really where the core of hope is in 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 our view in this new paradigm that we're trying to to promote because you know we've had this paradox in the last decade where all of these drugs that have tried to remove amyloid have failed um and yet research is showing that there's actually a stabilization or even falling rates of dementia in the united states and canada and other western european countries and you know this this really confounds things right because we haven't produced this change through biotechnology this really gets us into thinking in a much broader way uh, about public health and about sort of collective investments that were made in the mid 20th century that have ramified over the decades so that people who are now in their 70s or 80s actually have healthier, more resilient brains. Um, and we can go into some of those specifics, but that's that's sort of um, the, the broad strokes of, of, of what we're used to the hope in this field.
1: Uh, thank you, Daniel. Um, so exactly, and that's what most of this book really is about, uh, 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 more than half uh, or two-thirds, rather, of the chapters, and that is these uh, other causes uh, that explain both health or maintaining a healthy brain and, of course, explain uh, decline in rates. You note uh, uh, between um, 00 and 12, 11.6% to 8.8%. So there are several chapters by way of explanation. You mentioned, and I'll just name a few of these, um, the importance of food security, sound nutrition. Uh, you, you do, a, a, I thought, a, a very efficient but effective discussion of the problem uh, of associated uh, income inequality in this country, which has become beyond pronounced. You have a very interesting chapter on uh, the effects of the climate crisis, uh, poor nursing home care, etc. But by way of uh, getting into this, let me ask you: what were the what were the specific? And you could, I mean, I think the uh, listener can immediately say, uh, go back to uh, progress made. Say under Johnson, say Great Society program. You know, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. But what were some of those mid-century things that we did uh, that? Paid results when the persons who experience these benefits, for example, increased college enrollment uh, when they aged or became, uh, let's just say, Medicare eligible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you all who are in DC and are, you know, savvy with policy know that it's usually crises that drive change in Washington. And so, out of the crises of the Great Depression and World Wars, we sort of had this Keynesian moment, you know, with the New Deal and with a sort of ethos of, uh, you know, restricting capital mobility and um, making collective inv- investments in, in at the population level uh, that, that improved people's lives and grew the middle class. And specifically, as you mentioned, um, we had things like the GI Bill, which gave 10 million World War II veterans access to higher education. That, of course, wasn't equal across the board because there was still segregation in that era. Uh, but 10 million people got the benefit, the cognitive benefit of a higher education. Um, not the United States, uh, although the Great Society created uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which was beneficial. But all of the other countries that have shown falling dementia rates implemented universal healthcare systems in the mid mid 20th century. That obviously helped manage vascular risk factors. And as Peter is saying, you know, vascular dementia is uh, part of this syndrome quite often that we see with with Alzheimer's disease. Um, We had very remarkably successful smoking cessation campaigns that were launched in the 60s. 44% of Americans smoked in the late 60s, and now it's down to about 14%. And of course, in the 70s, we had the um, Clean Air Act, which we were a leader in the world at de-leading gasoline and really removing the burden of lead in environments that resulted in about 80% Blood level reduction, blood lead level reduction in the in the American populace. So, a lot of these very muscular, aggressive, collective investments that we made uh, in the population have eventuated as brain health benefits for the generations that were able to enjoy the fruits of those investments. And the reason that that's troubling today is because you know the crisis of the 70s um, with stagflation and oil shocks, et cetera. Um, led to another revolution, which was neoliberalism, which you mentioned before, David, and the sort of re- retrenchment of public investments, unleashing capital mobility uh, around the world, um, and really kind of uh, uh, halting our investment in public goods and shifting into an austerity, a time of austerity. And so now you think about the things that helped us in the tw- mid-20th century, um, like vascular health, Uh, And we've got 44 million uninsured Americans, 80 million who are underinsured and and uninsured. Uh, We're seeing a resurgence in chronic disease. Six out of 10 Americans are living with a chronic disease Uh, on the education front that, you know, we've basically turned higher education over to Wall Street to underwrite debt. That has been a total disaster in terms of inflation, inflation of costs. More men are not. Uh, going into education, we've just learned this week from the Wall Street Journal, and of course the the, the Flint uh, situation that that Peter mentioned has been a, a true disaster. We've got lead levels um, higher than Flint in most American cities um, because of the aging infrastructure and failure to um, properly regulate. Uh, our our water supply. So some of the the, the hopeful trends that we saw in the mid-20th century have been reversed over the last several decades. So a lot of us who study dementia are very concerned about uh, how that is going to um, result in in poor brain health over the next several decades.
1: Uh, Thank you, Daniel. Per the book, I think I'm quoting here, you, you say, increased access to formal and informal education, decreases in smoking, as you noted, public health programs, and societal infrastructure, and then you use the equal signs. Brain health, uh, and then you say further psychosocial benefits uh, result thereof, improved neuroplasticity, cognitive reserve, etc. All from these programs. Um, shock and amazement! Public health actually does uh, pay a return. And I thought it was interesting. You probably are aware the uh, fourteen fifteen billion dollar public health fund in the Affordable Care Act passed in ten was under constant attack. Uh, in fact, those money, some of those monies were used for pay-for's, um, so those funds were cut. Because, as you know, further in the book, you know, um, I don't know if you use this phrase, but of course, we fetishize individualism in this country. So, there is no such thing as, you know, a pop- health, population health issue. It all comes down. And you, you cite, of course, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, etc. Uh, Reagan. Um, there is no such thing as a, a, a population health issue. It's all. Um, the individual's uh, concern or fault. Um, so I thought all well-reasoned. I, I, I do want to uh, call out, you do use the phrase, of course, allostatic load. There's a lot of mental health aspects of all this involved. Uh, you get to this to some extent, along with, of course, lead in the water and sound nutrition. But I'd like to call that out because you do talk a fair amount about social isolation and loneliness.
2: Yeah, so maybe I can and jump in. I mean, that was just a wonderful exposition from Danny, both of you, about how many things seem to be turning in the wrong direction, because we have, as you said, David, focus so much on individuals and their responsibilities uh, and also on the market driving um, change. Uh, and, and let me just talk about the social isolation part of that in relationship to education, because A lot of these factors uh, affect health generally. And you can ask yourself, how do you keep your brain healthy? And uh, for me, uh, as an educator, I mean, it's all about learning. It's all about keeping your mind active. Of course, you have to keep your body active. But the future of this country and the future of this world depends on us taking more seriously how we educate ourselves and our children and make do that in an inclusive way. And I mean that inclusive across ethnic and financial uh, economic uh, boundaries and also between age. So um, Danny and I have both been involved in intergenerational public schools and public schools and public universities, the public in education has been under uh, a challenge. And, And to me, Uh, personally, this idea that that is the greatest commitment we have uh, to each other and to uh, future generations. So in the intergenerational schools that my wife and I started in Cleveland, individuals with, who are labeled with dementia, we don't use that label. We say they're just folks that have some cognitive challenges, participate in learning activities with children. Uh, Kids uh, from Cleveland who might not have uh, older adults in their lives, and older adults who uh, are looking for meaning and purpose in life. So this is a, a, a addressing social isolation, which is not a problem just for elders. Uh, uh, it's a problem for kids and uh, elders. And for that matter, in a time of um, uh, COVID, it's, you know, the challenges of how we reconstruct our societies uh, to address not only all the factors that Danny talked about, but our future on this planet and our relationships with nature, another huge intergenerational issue.
1: Absolutely. And, and back to uh, uh, Daniel's comment about Neil uh, neolib, uh, you do use the four D's in the book uh, to define deregulation, uh, decrease uh, taxes, uh, decrease social programming and deunionizing unionizing uh, labor. Those are usually the four at least attributes assigned to the definition. Um you use the phrase relative to psychosocial, um, so, uh, social which I, I think was previously unaware to, uh, try to, uh, emphasize or get at, um, uh, the social, uh, aspects of sound brain health. Uh, you also do, uh, touch upon, and this is, this is, I think, the richness of this book. It is so wide ranging. You do touch upon use of psychedelics. Um, and other, uh, treatment modalities, um, which of course I think, uh, fleshes this out, uh, quite well. I, I do want to ask about, since you're referring to, um, my day job or life, uh, doing or trying to forward, uh, federal policy in DC, you do mention, of course, the, uh, unavoidably having to have to mention the pharmaceutical industry, but where's, you know, I often, relative, for example, to the climate crisis, and just so you know, I've done 25-plus climate crisis interviews uh, over the last probably four or five years, Um, and it is striking to me how disengaged the healthcare industry is, particularly how bloated, when you factor how bloated the carbon uh, footprint is of the industry. But relative to brain health, uh, what's your assessment of the healthcare industry um, trying to do a, a more responsible job? Uh, in addressing this in a way that's not forwarding, and you use numerous phrases, casino capitalism, zombie capitalism, hyper capitalism, predatory capitalism, et cetera, but is doing it in such a way that's not forwarding those goals. So I've worked in um, hospitals all my
2: career, and um, currently um, in, in, in Cleveland, uh, I'll say two things about our four major hospital systems, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, Metro, and the VA. There are others. One is they've banded together to try to look at this ecological footprint issue uh, because uh, they've they've done a pretty good job, as some hospitals have, banding together for COVID. So they're kind of building on working together uh, and and trying to balance in competition and uh, cooperation better. And by the way, all four hospitals have said they will not administer aducanumab. So th- I, I see that as linked. You know, They're not gonna pick up every last uh, or every uh, next available technology and not look at it uh, with a degree of scrutiny that this one particularly deserves. But yes, at my university, as I work across the university, the medical school is often the one that's not uh, looking at their ecological footprint. They're the, the hardest ones to bring into recycling. And, um, you know, in conversations with CEOs in the past generation, it's like, well, where's where's the money? Uh, what, what what is the value of going green? Uh, it's going to cost us. And I think that is exactly why hospitals get their nonprofit status challenged, as they should. If they're not addressing uh, the community benefit as they are required to do even more so under, uh, when they become um accountable health organizations but if they're if they're if they're slow to the game that is uh that is worse than tragic it it's 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 because those are the institutions in the community supposed to be supporting health and here their ecological footprint and their concern about climate change is um it's not where it should be uh, so I look everywhere I can for organizations that are look at greening healthcare. unfortunately there are many of those now emerging
1: i uh, Daniel I have the same question for you particularly since and I will mention this the book concludes with uh, basically the two of you being interviewed uh, and the premise is that the, the two of you I think uh, are advantaged by collaborating in that you have you're of different generations so this appendix is titled an intergenerational interview with the Author. so uh, Daniel you're you're presenting the uh, younger generation perspective so what's same question. What's your perspective of where uh, the industry is or should be?
0: Yeah, thank you. First of all, David, thank you for your close read. You've you've teased out a, really a lot of nuances in the book, and we appreciate that. Um, yeah, I was pleased to see on your your uh, website actually, you you mentioned this uh, the, the fact that over you know 200 journals, medical journals and health related journals from NEJM to JAMA to Health Affairs have all kind of co-signed to recognize the climate crisis. And uh, I think in that in that interview at the end of our book, there's a really interesting interplay. You know, Peter and I are of, of different generations. He's a boomer. I'm a millennial. And, uh, you, you know, we're, we're, we've had an interesting dialectic around, you know, not just climate change, um, because Peter, You know, it's a good example of a boomer who feels a lot of responsibility for younger generations, um, but also things like neoliberalism and marketization, which are phrases that I think uh, I introduced into our conversation. And it's, you know, I don't want to speak for Peter, um, but I think it's opened his eyes to seeing things in different ways and how those two things are even linked uh, neoliberalism and and, uh, uh, climate change. Um, But I want to I want to go back, uh, David, to one thing that you said, You, you mentioned social pseudicals, and this is a kind of a. A funny phrase that we use almost tongue in cheek, which refers to the things that we know are effective for people in long term care homes, things like music therapy, pet therapy, um, uh, storytelling, intergenerational engagement. These things lack they fundamentally lack a business model around them, but they connect into something that's quintessentially human um, and uh, creates relationships and uh, validates people's um, humanity. And, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, because there's no business models around them, like there is something like aducanumab, uh, we, we, we never hear about these things, even though there, anybody who works in long-term care works with elderly patients will say those are the most, by far the most effective, uh, uh, uh interventions you see relative to drugs. Um, and then just to touch on psychedelics for a moment, I want to be careful that we're not too forward with our, um, you know, our, our hope for, for the, for those, uh, compounds, but I think there is there's some really innovative research being done at places like Johns Hopkins, where they're starting to test mm-hmm. psilocybin, which is, uh, you know, the compounded magic mushrooms in people with mild cognitive impairment. And the value that they've seen with something like psilocybin uh, to connect to the larger point about neoliberalism is that you only really need one or t- one one actual dose every right. six months or so. So the, you know there isn't really a business model around it per se, but we know that the efficacy from preliminary data appears to be really profound um, for for people who have um, addictive illnesses or PTSD, uh, soldiers coming back from, mm-hmm. from war, et cetera. Uh, so there, there, uh, there's some really interesting work going on in the dementia care world that we should definitely pay attention to.
1: Uh, thank you for that last point. Just to note, uh, I did interview uh, Rick Doblin, Who's been mm. working on this issue for 30 years um, at Harvard? Um, He's great. We're, yeah. we're at our uh, basically at our time, so I'm going to leave it at uh, offering uh, both a Peter and Daniel comment, uh, final comment uh, about this.
2: So uh, I'll, I'll uh, just say that uh, thank you for your time and attention and your close read, uh, and just focus on that first word: American dementia. Ours ours is essentially a cultural critique. Mm -hmm. It's not just unique to America, but it is a situation in which we are as a species are not doing so well remembering the past or planning the future or with our activities of daily living. So it's time to gain a little wisdom, a little humility, uh, perhaps along with that wisdom and uh, see the future through a lens that um, includes uh, the, the generations that are not yet born, including not only people but other living creatures. It's a time for really transforming our civilization, and we hope our book will, in some small way, create a lever to get people to think differently, not only about their brains and aging, but about the communities they live in. So thank you, David.
1: Thank you, Peter. Daniel?
0: Yeah, and I'll just say that we live in a time, um, you know, under late neoliberalism where things feel very stagnant and stultified uh, in our politics and our culture and in our science, et cetera. And I think the one um, thing that we can do right now is just try to tell the truth about what's happening uh, and demystify things as much as we possibly can and really show how the material conditions of our age, of our era, the political economic decisions that we're making are resulting not just in higher risk for dementia, but falling life expectancy, you know, over the last five years, deaths of despair, Mm-hmm. things are things are really amiss right now and you know while it feels uh impervious to change what we really can do is try to articulate the problems as they exist in the world and that's what peter and i are trying to do in the, in the alzheimer's sphere and i'll just say that uh, we do have a website um, americandementia.com and we have a facebook page with the name of our first book uh, the myth of alzheimer's and people can um you know uh, feel free to reach out to Peter and I, we want to try to start a conversation around these themes and on the, the bigger themes that we're, we're alluding to. Uh, but yeah, in closing, just thanks for having us, David. This has been wonderful.
1: Uh, thank you, Daniel. Relative to your word stagnant. I actually just wrote a letter to CMS. I used the word moribund. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and you. I do appreciate uh, the deaths of the spare. This is the Case Deaton book out of Princeton a year or two ago, 150,000 working age, um, um, uh, man regardless of race. Uh, this mm-hmm. this is what Durkheim called anomic suicides, but we could go on. So with that, yes. uh, gentlemen, it was a, it was very much my pleasure. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your time with me today, and I, I wish you every success with this book. Thank you, David. Thank you so much, David. We appreciate it.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.